0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. I'm Manish Rath, and uh, we've got a great program for you today, a great topic. And uh, this is a program for those of you who are new to the OSHA 3030. uh, We extend an especially warm welcome for those of you who are new. This is a program that we do every 30 days, and we try and cover in about 30 minutes a developing area in the field of OSHA law. Uh, this is a program that we do for friends and clients of the law firm keller and heckman llp here in washington dc and we've been doing it for over seven years uh, every 30 days uh, there uh, are a number of topics that we've covered over the years and they're all libraried on our website at khlaw.com uh, the only thing that we ask uh, in exchange from those who attend the osha 30 30 is when you get the invitation to register for the OSHA 3030, please forward that invitation by email on to three other people at least, even if you've already done so in the past. Find three more people who are responsible for safety and health or who are in-house counsel responsible for safety and health at your organization or other organizations within your industry so that the good word can spread about the program and so that we can keep it going for another seven or more years. Today's topic is a suit, a lawsuit brought in a federal court in Texas under the Freedom of Information Act against OSHA. And uh, this is a topic that we're doing uh, because this this, uh, suit was filed just recently within the past few weeks. As I said before, my name is Manish Rath. I'm a partner at the law firm Keller & Heckman right here in Washington DC, only blocks away from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration in one direction and a few blocks in the other direction towards the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. And right in between, here we are in our OSHA practice at Keller and Heckman. I'm joined today by one of my colleagues here at Keller and Heckman, Mr. Taylor Johnson, whom many of you are familiar with uh, because he's been a frequent uh, contributor to the OSHA 3030. Taylor, thank you for joining us today on the OSHA 3030 and welcome.
1: Thank you, Manish. It's a pleasure to be here, as always.
0: We're also joined by our producer, Jessica. Uh, Thank you, Jessica, and thank you for everyone else at Keller & Heckman who have helped put this program on for over seven years, over 85 episodes. As I said before, all of those episodes can be found, and many of them are still informative, educational, and relevant, and they can all be found on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. For the past number of years, we've also been doing this as a podcast, so check your local, your favorite podcast. Uh, streaming app and, and look up the OSHA 3030 and see if you can subscribe to it so that it automatically gets downloaded in case you miss these webinars. So with that said, Taylor, why don't we get into what we're going to talk about today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we've got a great program lined up today. Uh, we're going to be talking about the SlumberJay versus OSHA case, uh, a case in which the company uh, SlumberJay sued OSHA, which as the title of today's program indicates, prompted the agency to assert the informer's privilege. Uh, We'll get into the Freedom of Information Act or FOIA exemptions that agencies can claim and we'll specifically analyze the exemptions OSHA is claiming in this case. Uh, We'll unpack the informer's privilege and analyze it in the context of the Slumberger case. And as always, as we always do in the OSHA 3030, we will wrap up with some practical takeaways and action items for employers. And Manish, we've got a very interesting set of facts here to unpack, I think.
0: It's an unfortunate set of facts as often these OSHA cases start out with, with maybe things that you hope would never happen in the workplace. And uh, sadly, in this case, there was a, a workplace related accident. So our case starts off uh, at a marine terminal in Galveston County, in Gal- uh, near Galveston, Texas. And Schlumberger is a, a contractor uh, on site And they've engaged a subcontractor, Impact Waste LLC, including a number of other subcontractors, to engage in a demolition project uh, on a portion of the Marine Terminal there in Galveston, Texas. Uh, One of the employees, Kenneth Ellis, was an employee of Impact Waste LLC, to be clear. And he was assigned to that project, that demolition project. Uh, Schlumberger asked Impact Waste to begin work immediately impact waste stated that they believed that the project should be delayed until they could bring in a crane or a shear. And Schlumberger said that's fine, but you got to get that project started today regardless and then when the crane or shear comes in, you can you can employ those pieces of equipment. Uh, so they began work and on September 22nd, 2017, a horrible accident occurred. Kenneth Ellis was injured in that accident. Uh, he suffered a severe injury. To his leg, he was hospitalized, and the doctors uh, came to the unfortunate conclusion that his leg had to be amputated below the knee. Uh, OSHA conducted an inspection. Mr. Ellis and his wife implemented a lawsuit in state court in Texas against several of the subcontractors and Schlumberger. In that lawsuit, there was, of course, a process called discovery, which is the exchange of information. Then, remember, this is the lawsuit between Mr. Ellis and his wife and Schlumberger, as well as several other subcontractors. It is a personal injury suit, not an OSHA case.
1: That's right, Manish. And as you alluded to, the suit began with an exchange of pleadings. And then both parties entered a detailed and thorough discovery process. Um, Part of this discovery process involved the deposition of witnesses uh, under oath in the presence of a court reporter. And after a full day of depositions, Slumberger uncovered an incredibly intriguing piece of information. Uh, Stephen Perea, an impact waste employee, not only witnessed Mr. Ellis's accident firsthand, but he was also interviewed by an OSHA officer who came out to inspect the site, and that officer took notes. And Slumberjays' lawyers, they, you know, they quickly picked up on the fact that the statement Mr. Perea gave to the OSHA officer and the corresponding notes represented a clue to, to probably the best and most recent recollection of Mr. Ellis's accident. And as a result, they promptly filed a FOIA request seeking both Mr. Perea's statement as well as the corresponding notes. And, and Manish, OSHA did respond to Slumberger with, with some documents.
0: They produced about 60, 65 uh well they produced 126 page pdf but they withheld uh, several things amongst them a two-page document that were notes by the compliance officer the osha compliance officer specifically notes of his interview with mr pereira and they withheld a four-page employee statement by mr pereira and i believe they also withheld a recording and uh so so now what we have in the personal injury suit is that Schlumberger has as an aside issued a request for these documents under the Freedom of Information Act OSHA has provided 126 pages, but withheld those documents relating to the compliance officers interview with Mr. Pereira. Schlumberger appealed that OSHA response to their Freedom of, Inf- of Information Act request. Uh, which is required under the Freedom of Information Act as part of the required procedure for a a party requesting information. Uh, OSHA did not change its response. Schlumberger wrote a letter to to OSHA explaining its position and why it believed that OSHA's position was unwarranted, that the exemptions it was citing under the FOIA Act did not apply. And OSHA, in its response, as well as in phone calls, uh, exchange of phone calls, did not change his position. So for that reason Schlumberger had no choice, it felt, but to file suit in federal court against OSHA seeking that the court mandate production by OSHA under the Freedom of Information Act of the missing documents. Pereira's statement, uh, the the compliance officer's notes about the interview, and that the court ruled that OSHA's affirmative defenses be uh, denied or overruled. OSHA's affirmative defenses, Taylor, as you say, were that they relied on uh, the the two of the known enumerated exemptions under the Freedom of Information Act as well as OSHA's own self-declared informer's privilege. So so let's talk about the FOIA exemptions for a moment. So the yeah, freedom The Freedom of Information Act, uh, Taylor, it's it's an act that was implemented in 1966. And the essential purpose was to give the public transparency of government actions. And the mechanism was that members of the public, the press, anyone, could file a request of any government agency under the Freedom of Information Act seeking documents. They had to be identified with specificity and that the agency receiving that request would have to respond. Much of the action in the Freedom of Information Act, however, lives within its nine exemptions. Congress did not anticipate that by passing this act, that no matter what the request was, that a federal agency would have to produce documents. So they created nine exemptions that they enumerated as specifically not within the scope of the requesters' rights. The obvious example would be exemption number one if somebody was requesting documents that related to national security interests an agency would have no obligation to produce those documents so the two exemptions at stake here osha identified that it was relying on in denying Schlumberger's request for those missing documents were exemptions five and exemptions seven c and d taylor
1: that's right manish and um you know the the informer's privilege doctrine, um, which is another defense that that OSHA raised in the case as a reason for why they didn't want to to produce these documents. Um, That's you can sorry, find
0: Taylor. I apologize yeah. before we get into the informer's privilege. I think we should talk about exemptions five and seven C and seven D. Exemption Absolutely. five basically states that an agency does not have to produce documents if. It was a document that related to the deliberative process of the agency. That meant that Congress anticipated that agencies would have staff exchanging, for example, correspondences or draft documents going back and forth deliberating on what a final rule might look like or deliberating about enforcement actions and that that should not be subjected to public view. Exemptions 7 and C&D go to personal privacy data and the identity of confidential sources. The identity of confidential sources should not be revealed if they're inherently confidential uh, under a FOIA request and anyone's personally private data, A classic example in my mind would be, for example, social security numbers should not be released simply because somebody made a request for them under the Freedom of Information Act. So OSHA claimed that exemption five for the deliberative process that the agency underwent and exemptions seven C and D for personally private data and the identity of confidential sources applied here. And thus it should not have to produce interview notes uh, by the compliance officer of Mr. Pereira or Mr. Pereira's own statement. So Taylor, my apologies. Let's talk about the informer's privilege doctrine, which is unique to OSHA.
1: Absolutely. And, and as I stated earlier, you know, this was uh, asserted by OSHA in addition to the FOIA exemptions that Manish just covered. And the OSHA field manual, uh, which is essentially a directive to OSHA's field officers on how to conduct inspections, uh, contains a section on interviewing witnesses, which contains um, this notion of the informer's privilege. And specifically, you know, the privilege allows OSHA to withhold the identity of individuals who provide information to the agency in the course of an inspection. And not only that, but the privilege allows OSHA to withhold entire witness statements when disclosing such statements would reveal the identity of a witness. And, and now to be clear, you know, as Manish was alluding to, Congress did not grant an informer's privilege to OSHA. Uh, rather, this is a self-declared privilege. And you know, regardless of how you feel about whistleblowers and the protection of their identity, it's important here to point out that OSHA declared this broad privilege to be applicable to themselves and, and not whistleblowers specifically. And and Manish, the the OSHA Review Commission has outlined, in prior cases, a test that they will apply when evaluating agency claims of informer's privilege.
0: That's right. It's critical to note that OSHA's self-declared informer's privilege has been tested by the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, an independent agency that is statutorily mandated to serve as the tribunal in OSHA-related contests. And the review commission said this self declared informer's privilege is not an absolute privilege. A party seeking information under the informer's, the, a party seeking information that OSHA has declared falls within the informer's privilege may still get that data if it can show that there's a substantial need for that data, that out, that, that need outweighs the government's need to keep the data uh, privileged or, or confidential and that the information is essential to the preparation of a case and that the requester is unable to attain, obtain that uh, documentation or data by any other means. And if an employer, for example, can show in a OSHA citation contest that it has that substantial need for the information uh, and that substantial need outweighs the government's n- uh, need for keeping it da- uh, private, and that the information cannot be obtained by other means and is essential to the preparation of the case, then the review commission opined the employer should have that data, regardless of whether or not OSHA believes the informer's privilege applies to the data.
1: That's right, Manish. And there are a few additional considerations here, too. Um, You know, just a few things to consider that that weigh against. OSHA's claim of privilege in this case. Um, uh, The first being that courts generally eschew or or avoid uh, trial by surprise, um, otherwise known as trial by ambush, and that's a long-standing principle uh, in our legal system. And As a first-hand witness to the accident, uh, Mr. Pereira's statement to OSHA is certainly material to the the case, and Slumberger arguably has the right to the content of that statement. Uh, Additionally, the Rules of Discovery, uh, specifically Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 26, state that a party must provide the name, if known, the address and telephone number of each individual likely to have discoverable information in a case. And additionally, uh, the confrontation Clause of the Sixth Amendment, otherwise known as the right to face your accuser, states that the accused should have a chance to evaluate statements against him or her. And as, as Mr. Pereira's statement could be detrimental to Slumberger, uh, they, they arguably have the right to question the statement and the accounts that Mr. Pereira provided. And now Manish, I know you have some additional thoughts uh, regarding OSHA's arguments in this case.
0: Well, so I, I do. and I think the problems that OSHA is going to face in the FOIA contest in federal court in Texas all uh, center around the scope of applicability of these exemptions. One thing that's important to consider, as you've said a number of times, as you and I have discussed this case, Taylor, is that the identity of the informer is no longer at issue. Preserving the confidentiality of his identity is already foregone. Mr. Pereira testified in a deposition in the personal injury suit brought by Mr. Ellis. When deposed under oath, he testified that he has given a statement to OSHA. So when Schlumberger seeks from OSHA the Pereira statement or notes about his statements to the compliance officer. His identity is no longer an open question. Uh, so, so the exemption for under C number 7 7D, which is the identity of a, a confidentiality of the identity of an informant, is completely out the window. It also uh, obliterates the uh, reliance on OSHA's own self-declared informer's privilege. Uh, then then you're left with exemption 7C, which is personally private data. Uh, I don't think OSHA will be able to show, but I haven't seen Mr. Pereira's statement. I don't think since Slumberger has. I don't think many people have. Uh, since Schlumberger has not either. Uh, but it's not likely that Mr. Pereira's statement includes personally private data. I gave the example of a social security number. Nevertheless, it is possible to merely redact the personally private data like a social security number and release the rest of his statement or the rest of the compliance officer's notes about his interview with Mr. Pereira and preserve the interests expressed under FOIA Exemption 7C. So you're only left to conclude that perhaps OSHA, by redacting all of those pages in their entirety, withholding them, would have been an overbroad application and perhaps indefensible application of exemption 7C also. That finally brings us around to Exemption 5, which if you recollect is a deliberative process. Uh, I don't see how the deliberative process applies to a witness statement of fact. If there was a, another document where two compliance officers or a compliance officer and his area director were debating the utility of the document, the pros and cons, the probity, the merits, the credibility of Mr. Prairie's statement, those documents could theoretically be protected under exemption five of the FOIA Act, the deliberative process. But his statements, the underlying facts themselves, I don't see a strong case for OSHA for preserving them. Uh, this case has yet to be heard by the court. So we'll all find out together and I'll be sure to be happy to update you for any of you listening who have questions. But, but we do know this, there, there have been Supreme Court cases in other areas of law where these issues have, have been tried. Uh, one example the United States Supreme Court ruled in Rovario versus United States that once the identity of an informer has been disclosed, uh, the privilege is no longer applicable. And I believe that they're referring to the, priv- the FOIA exemption under 7D. Uh, the deliberative process, The as I said before, I think that there's, there's a good argument that the compliance officer's notes about the interview with Mr. Pereira were purely factual. They would have gone to what Mr. Pereira saw, heard, observed, uh, maybe even his impressions, but not the impressions of the compliance officer. And even if there were, those specific elements could be redacted, but not the entirety of the document. Uh, Finally, I think OSHA is gonna have a real problem with the informer's privilege at all as a response to a FOIA request. The FOIA request is issued by an employer, in this case Schlumberger, under the Freedom of Information Act. And the Freedom of Information Act contains within itself the enumerated exemptions that an agency can rely on. It cannot point to its own internal uh, directives to its field offices to to say this is a basis for not complying with a congressional statute like the Freedom of Information Act. The informer's privilege is not a FOIA exemption. It is an internal policy for the agency, and it's a policy that doesn't even presume itself to apply to FOIA requests. On the face of the informer's privilege as drafted by OSHA, OSHA only intended to self-declare that privilege for itself in the context of OSHA citations, OSHA inspections, OSHA complaints, and never presumed when drafting its own self-declared informer's privilege that it would also apply to FOIA requests. But, se- but Exemption 7D is somewhat analogous to the informer's privilege because it covers the identity of a confidential informant. So, so I don't think the informer's privilege will shield an agency from a FOIA request, but they, they do have Section 7D if they think it applies. I, I think they're gonna have trouble evidentiarily in showing that given that Mr. Pereira has already self-disclosed his identity. So with that said, Taylor, uh, as you know, we've always wrapped up our program with a practical discussion for our members of the OSHA 3030 community uh, that, that we hope to provide them with takeaway items, action items that they can bring back to their employers and say, hey, I have listened to the OSHA 3030. Here's some action items that we can take uh, to tighten up our own efforts and practices. Taylor, uh, why don't you start us off with, with some of the things that, in light of the the Schlumberger versus OSHA case that that come to mind as to what what employers should do going forward.
1: Yeah, sure, Manish and first i will say that you know being that you have represented clients uh, in jury trials at at both the federal and state level in texas uh, including osha review commission cases i'm particularly interested in your analysis here Uh, but one thing that jumps out to me is that employers should file FOIA requests a style to be both as broad and as specific as possible so identifying the specific issue but seeking all methods of communication all emails letters notes records etc seeking any information related to any OSHA citations against your company?
0: So general and specific at the same time, a FOIA request could say, we request the following items, the entire inspection file, and then specifically interview notes of Mr. Pereira and any statement that he wrote or signed, uh, any recordings of the interview or conversations uh, with Mr. Pereira. That would be the specific examples and then the general is just the whole case file. That way, if a court strikes down one request, it still has the others that it has to analyze individually. I think the other thing that I'd say is uh, to document the FOIA process throughout the FOIA process. One thing I will say about Schlumberger's case, their attorneys did a remarkably good job of prosecuting their FOIA request quickly. They issued their first FOIA request sometime in late July, I recollect. By August, they'd gotten a rejection, essentially, of those four to six documents and a recording. And by mid-September, they were in federal court uh, with a claim that OSHA had failed to comply with the act. I am impressed and I and I can say that I thought they did an excellent job in, in compressing that time because time was, go- the elapsing of greater amounts of time was going to prejudice their client, Schlumberger, in defending themselves in this other case, the personal injury suit. In other words, they need this information early in the discovery process for the personal injury suit. So that's the next piece of advice I'd suppose I'd give is is document your entire process going through the FOIA uh, request process, and as well, trying to be as um, abbreviated as possible in getting through to the end of that process so that you have a final adjudication. Note that you have an opportunity to appeal and you're required to go through the administrative appeal first before you go to court and you have 20 days to do so. Uh, And and I'd say also the idea that uh, you're documenting this is twofold. It's, it's also a burden uh, to make sure that you have explained to OSHA all of the reasons and provided them with the evidence that supports your position that the FOIA exemptions do not apply. In this case, just taking as an example, I suppose I would have given pages from the transcript, from the sworn transcript of the, the deposition taken under oath of Mr. Pereira to demonstrate that he's revealed his own identity and that, that those exemptions don't apply. That would have uh, trying to protect his identity when he's already revealed it.
1: Yeah, that's, that's those some great points, Manish. And additionally, you know, just again, following, you know, sort of the playbook of the, of the slumberger lawyers in this case, um, you know, we certainly recommend opposing or obtaining affidavits uh, from, from any relevant witnesses uh, promptly. Um, and uh, there are three, at least three good reasons for this. Uh, first, witnesses can become unavailable over time. Uh, they, can right. move, they, they can move, yeah, yeah.
0: they can. Yeah. They move, they pass away. they, Right. they get transferred to other places, they're out of jurisdiction, they can no longer be found.
1: Right, exactly. Um, you know, second witnesses, uh, you know, their recollections can fade, uh, which is likely the case here with, with Mr. And which is why obtaining his, you know, sort of in the moment or very recent recollection of the accident is, is so important to Schlumberger in this case. And, and third, witnesses' motives, you know, they, they can change. They, they can leave the company. Uh, you never know what their motives will be at that point. There could be disputes as to why they left. Um, essentially, you, you just never know. And then that's why it's important to, to obtain those statements, um, you know, as soon as you can.
0: I do that every time. Uh, with every case, I the one of the first things I do is, is understand every fact I can possibly get about the case early. And then I go straight to the people who have witnessed. Uh, eyewitness testimony or other fact witnesses, and I get their statements as early as I can. I don't think there's a lot of people who who can claim that they remember uh, incredible levels of detail for things that happened two and a half, three years ago. But that is the the time length between the big, uh, an event and maybe it, it finally seeing its day in court. And so to expect a, a witness to get on the stand at trial and have such great recollection without having the benefit of having recorded it When it was still fresh in their mind is a mistake. Uh, So I get witness affidavits witness statements as early as I possibly can and try and get as much detail. I'll sometimes get second and third statements supplementary statements if more facts come to light. Uh, Because the earlier you can do that, the more you've locked in the facts at the moment when they're the most when when recollections are the most reliable. Uh, I think that's really critical and that obviously happened here organically because there was an OSHA on site inspection and Mr. Pereira gave us uh, eyewitness accounts to that compliance officer. Uh, the other thing I'd do is from those witnesses, uh, one last question, in addition to all the facts that they observed, uh, would be to, to ask them whether or not they have way would be willing to waive their the confidentiality of their identity or be able to release the agency to produce their statement to the employer, should anyone ask. Uh, you could even do that in the deposition. And that's something that I, I would think is one of the best lessons that can be taken away from the Schlumberger versus OSHA case uh, going forward, of course. It's easy to Monday morning quarterback, and as I said before, I think they've been doing an excellent job. Uh, With that said, I got to tell you, I think that, Taylor, the the Schlumberger versus OSHA case, just on the issues of law that it is testing, is going to be one of the most uh, intriguing, Decisions to come out in the year in which it comes out. I think it's the most certainly the most one of the most intriguing suits to be filed this year in the field of OSHA law. Uh, as a practitioner, as you said, somebody who uh, I've I've tried uh, cases all around the country and uh, in state and federal courts, and and also these OSHA citation contests in every almost every jurisdiction in every region have been in Texas within the last year, and I think that this. Lawsuit for the Information of the Freedom of Information Act is going to be an incredibly powerful opinion when it comes out for those kinds of cases that, that you and I engage in regularly. With that said, uh, I've got the last word uh, on today's OSHA 3030. That doesn't always happen. Uh, I'm happy to take it. Uh, We'll, we'll be back again every month. The next month, we'll be back again for another episode of the OSHA 3030. Between now and then, you can catch more information on our Twitter account at, at Rath Monish or connect with any one of us on our LinkedIn accounts, including the Keller and Heckman Workplace Safety and Health LinkedIn page, but also those of Taylor Johnson, Monish Rath, David Servati, Larry Halpern, uh, Javanay Nukumrum, John Gustafson, others. Uh, each of us have LinkedIn pages. Please LinkedIn with us. Uh, and, and this program gets republished as a, uh, as a podcast that can be found on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google, Spotify, even iHeartRadio, all carry the OSHA 3030. When you listen to the OSHA 3030 as a podcast, please don't forget to rate or like it so that it's more easily searched by others. We'll be back again next month at 1.30 on Wednesday, December 16th, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. Eastern time. And our next one is December 16th. We look forward to seeing you then. Uh, Be sure to catch our sister programs if your operations uh, are covered under those statutes, the TSCA 3030 and the REACH 3030 on December 9th, 2020, and the FIFO 3030. Stay tuned for an invitation for that program as well. Until December 16th, Thank you all for participating in this month's OSHA 3030. Taylor Johnson, thank you for joining me. I want to thank everyone else at Keller and Heckman who's helped support the program. Uh, And thank you all to the uh, participants and the regular attendees who have forwarded on these invitations to three other people on a regular basis. Until December 16th, 16th, uh, we look forward to seeing you then. And until then, stay safe.